media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. If you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 7. Have you ever heard the phrase paradigm shift? Anybody ever hear that? Kind of understand what that is? Basically, it means a change from one way of thinking to another. A lot of times we'll hear that term in uh, terms of business, paradigm shifts that would go out on, in the business world. Uh, we hear that in science. Uh, we hear that in technological things where there's a paradigm shift. And this morning we're going to see that it really has uh, application also to the spiritual world and to our spiritual understanding. Because one of the things that we begin to understand as we come upon this passage this morning and, and why I didn't go to another passage and remain here in Mark as we approach Easter is because there was a uh, radical paradigm shift that was happening in the ministry of Christ. And it was becoming more and more pronounced. Uh, even though we're in Mark chapter 7 and we have many, many, many chapters to go, remember that Mark, uh, he loves that word immediately because he likes to think uh, about moving quickly to the cross and to that last holy week and to the resurrection. And we really begin to see that in this passage where the ministry of Christ is really taking a change, so to speak, and uh, we see a dramatic change and especially a paradigm shift uh, even to the disciples and to the Jewish leaders there. Uh, I say that because we're going to see a radical thing happen in the mindset of both the Jewish and the Gentile people. Uh, the Jewish people really focused on that they were called of God. They were God's called out people. We do not make light of that. Christ did not make light of that. In fact, he calls them the children of Israel. He calls them God's children. And uh, he very much came. And his entire ministry, for the most part, was focused on the Jewish people. He came in first and foremost to do that. It's only after Pentecost that we really see an expansion out to what we would consider the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And and so the focus, 99% of it is going to be to the Jewish people. The Gentiles are also kind of under, uh, aware very much of this, uh, that they are non-Jewish <laughs> and the mindset that the Jewish people had. Uh, they uh, knew that the Jewish people considered them unclean. They knew that they would call them derogatory terms like dogs. They would even call them barbaric. They thought that because you're not the people of God, you're just these evil people. They, uh, words like pagan. And all these different things. And so there's a rift between the Jewish people and the, the pagan people. And it wasn't just kind of, you know, a little bit of a disagreement. They truly were worlds apart. They truly did not get along with one another. In fact, I would, when the ministry of Christ comes, and especially this story today, we see a complete 180 turn of what we would think in terms of Christianity today. We would kind of consider ourselves God's people, because we put our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. We just sang about that. And many of us, if we had Jewish friends that were not believing in Christ, that is, they didn't accept Christ as the Messiah, we would see them as lost. It's a complete 180 from what was the, the thought process back in Jesus' time. The Jewish people thought, okay, we're the ones, and all of y'all are lost. And, and today in Christianity, we kind of have this complete different view. But there was one major difference. 
Where in our time, I think that we would have compassion for those that are without Christ. I think that we would look, if we had Jewish friends that we worked with, if we had uh, other people that we were uh, neighbors and and Jewish people, I, I would hope, I would believe that we as Christians would very much want to share with them the gift of Christ and that we would want to do that. That was not the case back in Jesus' day, how the Jews felt toward those that were non-Jewish, the Gentiles. They did not want to share. They drew a line in the sand, and they did not want the Gentiles to to really follow God. Again, they thought of them as barbaric and heathen and pagan, and, and they were offensive. Now, I say all this because I want you to know the understanding of the text of Mark chapter 7. We have this existing mindset in our day, and it truly was 180 degrees different just 2,000 years ago. And it's hard to grasp how radical that was from our current mindset. But we begin to understand a little bit of it as we go to Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he arose, that is, Jesus arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, when we read that, we're going, okay, he has this Galilean ministry. He's around the, the Sea of Galilee. He's going to Capernaum, his headquarters. He's going kind of there, here and everywhere. He's kind of all about. Well, let me show you a map. And again, I realize that some people love maps, but this map really does give us a great understanding. Do you see the Sea of Galilee there? That's that body of water kind of down in the middle at the very bottom. That's the Sea of Galilee. And a lot of the ministry of Christ happened around the Sea of Galilee and Galilean uh, territory. Do you see up there where that little red kind of balloon is? That's Tyre. If you go up all the way to the top, you can barely see it. That's Sidon. Tyre is about 36, 37 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. Another 24 miles north is this port city of Sidon. Now, the reason why that's important is that this is outside of Israel. This is outside of there. In fact, Tyre is the modern-day Lebanon. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, we took a trip up kind of to the northern part there, and then the guide said, we can't go any farther. You know, your safety, we cannot go any farther. And we went up there kind of as far as you could. And uh, again, there's just war going on to this day. And there's fighting to this very day. Well, of all the times, and, and as far as I know, please correct me if I'm wrong, this is the only time that we see Jesus really go outside of Israel. Certainly he went outside of the Galilee area. He went to Jerusalem. He did have some ministry there. There's a couple other places he goes, but this is the first time that he actually leaves kind of the, if you want to say, uh, the, the, the inwards of, of Israel and goes to this place that's far away. Now, why did he do that? Once again, for the most part, we think that it's for rest. Because the, uh, the the ministry of Christ was quite tiresome because the crowd was always among him. And you see that at the end of verse 24, that he's kind of going there and he kind of wants to remain hidden. And yet what do we see throughout the ministry of Christ? <laughs> you can't hide. <laughs> In fact, if you went back to, uh, to Mark chapter 3, I forget exactly what verse it is, you would see that the news of Christ had spread amongst all these different places and it begins to list all these places. And one of the places that it said that he became known is in Tyre and Sidon. This is outside of Jewish territory and yet people began to know him. Now I hope that gives you kind of a mindset because as we begin to look at verse 23, um, 
let's link it to last week. We just finished with talking about how the religious leaders put all their emphasis on keeping the law. And Jesus kind of threw that whole mindset uh, upside down when he said, no, it's all about your heart. Yes, I will keep the law. I came to fulfill the law. But he said, I come because you need somebody who's a law keeper and you have an inability to keep the law. One of the biggest things that you and I, when we understand the truth about man, is that we are not law keepers. We may be better than somebody else. Remember last week why we're drawn to religion? Religious activity? Because we can master it. And if we can't master it, we can begin to measure it. And all I have to do is find people that are not quite as good at keeping the law. And if we can't do that, then I can manipulate it. Well, it says this, but what it really means is that. That's why we're drawn to religious and religious activity. And the Jewish people very much were, especially the Jewish leaders. They'd taken those Ten Commandments, added 613 to help interpret what those ten really meant. Jesus' whole point about this is how they deceived themselves. That somehow they thought that through their efforts they could gain entrance to God, relationship with God. And Jesus was there to tell them, no, this is not how you get a relationship with God. If you look back on verse 14 and 15 from last week, it really does give us kind of that uh, the, the summary of Jesus' argument. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 and 15. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words, you can really look good on the outside and really be messed up on the inside. Would you agree with that statement? Would you agree with that statement about yourself? That there's a trap there that since we can try to master religious activity, if not, we can measure them. And all I have to do is just find other people. And, and each family probably has enough people just in your family that you can go, okay, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And if worse, turn on Jerry Springer. And at that point, you're going, okay, I really do feel quite accomplished now. I, I mean, do you see the point that Jesus is making? That all those others lead us astray. Right after this whole paradigm shift in thinking, Mark and Matthew both record this next story. And it's remarkable that even though a lot of times the gospel writers would kind of flip stories and put one here and one, the other one right here, both of them follow what we saw last week about Jesus' um, confronting the religious leaders and the law. And both of them put this story directly afterwards. I don't think that's by mistake. I think it's chronological, and I think it happened chronologically, intentionally, because God wanted for you and I to have an illustration of what that looks like in real life. Jesus breaks the rules, and he travels into Gentile land, and look what happens. Mark chapter 7, verse 25. But immediately, again, Mark's favorite word, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now notice how Mark describes this woman, verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. From a rules perspective, from a religious perspective of the Jews, this woman had three strikes against her before she even got up to bat. 
She's a Gentile. Worse than that, she's actually a part of a, a, a tribe within the, the Gentiles, the Syrophoenician. She's a Syrophoenician woman. And her daughter is demon-possessed. And a lot of the Jewish people say, well, that's kind of what you get, you, you godless people. I mean, it, there's no way that if this had happened to any other rabbi, especially the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or those uppers in the religious authority of the Jewish people, she would not have had entree to them whatsoever. She comes without a single religious credential. And there was nothing that this woman had, no merit whatsoever. She couldn't say, well, I tried to be a good person. The description that Mark gives is a clarifying statement that this is who she kind of was. And yet she has need. And she will not go away. One of the great things that we see throughout the reality of the Bible is what I've come to, to see in my own life, uh, observe in my own life, and that is the powerful love of a mother. It is amazing how moms love. We were just having this discussion the other night that I, I think that I love my kids and my grandchildren completely, and I think I can get, get to like fifth gear, and then somehow Carly steps on the clutch and finds sixth gear, and I'm going, I don't have a sixth gear. And somehow moms have that. It's not that dads don't love their kids, but it's almost like there's just one extra thing that God just put and wired up in the heart of mom. And we see that here. This woman is, by all measures, she's not a God-fearing person. And yet she has need. And her need is her daughter. What happens? At first, especially if we read the Matthew's account, we see that she is crying after them. And the disciples in Matthew's account says, send her away, Jesus. She's bothering us. Will you just send her away? Will you just take her away? It also says that Jesus didn't respond to her at first. That she's kind of crying out. And it wasn't like Jesus immediately went over there and began to respond to her. He kind of goes on for a little while. And that's kind of a mystery. And she cries out and says, have mercy on me. And look what happens in verse 27. Jesus' silence breaks toward her. And he that is Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How many of you, if you just kind of had to pick out different verses and there was like nine different sayings on there, and that's okay, which one of these sayings belongs to Jesus? How many of you would come upon this one and go, That doesn't sound like my Jesus. It really doesn't. I mean, to, to use this reference as a dog? One of, the, one of the words that the Jewish people had for the Gentiles was dog. Now, now before you go too far and think, oh, I can't believe that Jesus would kind of condone that, that he would be a part of that, wait to the end of the story, and we're going to see that Jesus is actually using uh, a play on words there. But he says, let the children, that is the children of Israel... That's the reference there. Be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. For most of us, that would not be an affectionate term. So is Jesus just being hard-hearted? Is, is his Jewish roots coming out? Does he have a hatred for the Gentile people? No, not at all. Jesus does something incredibly interesting here. Now again, guys, when we mention the Greek word, the Hebrew word, I truly promise you we are not trying to say, Yes, we're really smart people. I do not know Greek, and I do not know Hebrew. 
I know how to use the tools to interpret Greek and Hebrew, okay? So I'll tell you right up front, this is not some smart guy here. I just, I've been trained to use the tools. And I'm glad because the Hebrew and the Greek language are amazingly illustrative. Amazingly. And here he uses a word for dog that means little dog, puppy. It's different from the word that means scoundrel dog. They did have wild dogs back in those days. Those wild dogs would come in and take attack their sheep. And, there's, and the people hated the wild dogs. And when most Jewish people called Gentiles dogs, they were referring to that kind of dog. Jesus uses this term that all the disciples and even this woman would have been familiar with, and he changes it. And all of a sudden he uses the word for a a, a family dog, a dog that you have in your own home. So what was Jesus saying to her? Most would agree that Jesus is referring to the Jewish people as when he uses the word children there. So Jesus is telling her that, that he's come first and foremost for the Jewish people. And this lines up with all the other scriptures that we see and even the, uh, the uh, descriptions that we see as he instructs his disciples. Remember when he sent them out two by two? Uh, look back in Matthew, Matthew, Matthew 10, 5, and 6, and look in the instructions that he gave to the 12 as he sent them out. These 12 sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, why did he say that? Because he's opposed to the Gentiles? He's falling into that whole kind of mindset? No. He knew that his primary purpose, first and foremost, go to the Jewish people. Knowing that he would be rejected, knowing that they would be the very ones that would put him on the cross, and that really the ministry to the Gentiles wouldn't happen until after Pentecost. Doesn't mean that some ministry didn't happen to the Gentiles, especially those that might be around the Galilean area. But for the most part, the target was always the Jewish people. And as harsh as that seems to us, Jesus knew that his ministry was directed to the Jews and that it would be expanded later on. But this woman comes up and she, she, she begs for mercy. She shows incredible faith. And look how Jesus responds to her comment in verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Or how she responds, I'm sorry, to to Jesus' comment. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, what word did she use for dog? Puppy. Family dog. That scoundrel. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, even, even even the dogs get the crumbs. She displays an amazing understanding of who Jesus is and the ministry of Jesus. Far more than the Jewish people of the day. They're not getting it. They don't see the need for a Savior. She sees her great need. In fact, as Jesus made a play upon his words of dog, and not calling the scoundrel dog, but call it the puppy dog, the the family dog, she actually, in her response does a play on words. Because she's some theologian? No. She gets the call of Christ. She she understands this ministry. When she uses the word children there, she uses the Greek word technon, which, or when Jesus talked about it, he used the word children, technon, 
meaning the biological children, when he referred to Israel. When she responds and uses the, the word children, she uses another word, pedion. And that means all children, including servant children. Are you tracking? Jesus takes a word that was derogatory and he actually changes it. And then she comes back and takes a word that was pretty secluded or very much inclusive of this and she expands it. She gets what Jesus is saying. In other words, the woman is saying that she realized that she is not Jewish, that she does not come with credentials. She does not come with merit. If anything, she comes with three strikes against her, but she gets that she needs a savior and she needs a help. Folks, that's true humility. She agrees that she has no merit, that she doesn't maybe even know all the laws. Get this. She comes on the basis of grace and grace alone. But whose grace? The grace of Jesus. How does she respond to such, how does Jesus respond to such faith? Like he always does to genuine, authentic belief. Some of the, the, the people that describe, uh, that Jesus describes as having the greatest faith were not the Jewish people. Remember the, 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 the uh, soldier? <laughs> Never have I seen such great faith. You understand that if you command somebody to do this, you get it. And now he responds here, verse 29, and he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. Matthew says it in his account, uh, same story, same event. But Matthew says it a little bit more dramatically than Mark. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. To me, there is no mistake of why Mark and Matthew both record this story right after this event with the religious leaders. I do believe that it probably chronologically happened that way. But again, everything that Christ ever did was purposeful. And why does he go so far away? Why does he go into a land that's totally outside of Israel? Because this mind shift change to demonstrate to the, to the disciples the true ministry. They were great at looking on the outside, the Jewish people no matter what existed on the outside. They were big about credentials. But on the inside, they were bankrupt, many of them. This woman was just on the outside. On the outside, three strikes against her. But on the inside, she's as rich as a person could be. Bankrupt on the outside, but rich on the inside because she realizes her need for a savior. In fact, if you went to the Gospel of Matthew and noticed three different times she called him Lord. Three different times, not once, not twice, three different times. And in that passage in in Matthew, she actually refers to him as the son of David. That's messianic. That's a messianic name of Christ. Are the Jewish people calling him Lord? Are they calling him the son of David? No. His own people do not recognize who he is and reject him as such. In this so lost, pagan, heathen, scoundrel of a woman comes to saving faith 
in her humility. Lord, 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 Son of David. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this, compared her faith, said her faith is like a diamond being held up to the light and the sparkle comes through it. Spurgeon always says things better than I can say them. <laughs> he always gives these great, great illustrations and, and, and he loved this. And so two questions for you this morning. Do your insides match your outsides? Well, that's not fair, Pastor. <laughs> we would want there to be alignment there. I, I tell you, probably one of the greatest fears of pastors, they may not tell you this, but one of the greatest fears of pastors is that you'll find out the man that they are instead of the man that you think they are. Because we feel a discrepancy of that. Oh, that Bobby, you know, or this person or that, that pastor. And we know in our heart that there's some darkness and that we battle with greed and pride and lust and doubt and all those different things. We understand that about ourselves. But how easy it is just to go on and live life kind of based on what other people think of you and what they see from the outside instead of really truly examining on the inside and saying, man, this is not godly. This is not right. And God, I confess it and I humble myself and I pray that you would rid me of this. The important truth in this passage is that we see the humility of this woman. And humility comes about when we get the truth about God and we get the truth about man. When we get those true truths right, it cannot help but produce humility in our life. Second question for you this morning. Do you get Easter I mean, not that you understand that it's a day and, you know, Jesus died and then he rose again. And not that it's a date on the calendar that we celebrate. Do you really get Easter? Because Easter is all about the truth of God and the truth of man. And the place that we get the full truth of God and the full truth of man is in his word revealed by the Holy Spirit. The minute that we go out to religious activity, the minute that we get to religious talk, and we get even, I know many theologians that they're just like a dog chasing their tail. I mean, we really did debate one time, not with the professor because I don't think that he would have allowed it, but we had a lunchroom discussion one time in seminary, you know, can God make a rock big enough that God can't move? There's a stupid question. <laughs> right up there with it. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? I mean, they just say, you know. There's no point. There's no point. The Bible reveals the truth about God and who he is in all this holiness. And it reveals the truth about us and all of our sinfulness and our rejection. When you get both of those, you get Easter. The religious leaders, they didn't get Easter. This woman, she got Easter. And I realize Easter has not happened yet, and we could go and look at church history and all the development of that. But do you understand what? She gets the gospel. 
Well, maybe because she was just so bankrupt. Exactly, guys, exactly. When you get how bankrupt we are, then you see that, man, I have no choice. I have no other way than this Christ who is for me and would give his life for me. It's the most freeing realization. I know in one way we've been taught self-esteem and all those, and I'm all for self-esteem in the proper spiritual light. But why is the number one description of Christians after the cross who we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ? Do you get Easter? Getting Easter is understanding the truth about God and the truth about man. And the more that we get that, the more we begin to see the greatest events of all world history, that God would send his son to die in our place, that he would die upon an old rugged cross, and three days later he would rise from the dead, giving those who put faith and trust in his finished work victory over sin, death, and the grave. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you for this woman, and Father, uh, one day I believe that we're going to be able to meet her. And we may not know her name today, but Father, one day she may be sitting over there in that hall of fame of faith, Father. And I don't know how you're going to work out heaven and all those things. I just know that what we see here, that Jesus very much proclaims that she had great faith. And Father, we want to have that great faith. Is, did she have great faith because she knew how to follow all the rules? No, she had great faith, Father. She saw Jesus for who he was. Lord, 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 Son of David. Something that is even his own people could not see. So, Father, will you give us eyes to see? Will you give us ears to hear? Will you give us an understanding? So that this Easter is it's not just kind of the facts about history, but, Father, it is a true understanding of our great need for you. Father, as Christ died and and bled on that cross, it's the greatest love story that we could ever sing. Father, we love you and we thank you. Give us the faith of this Gentile, Seraphonician woman. Strip us of all of our religious merit that we think we have and show us the sufficiency of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook. Facebook.